You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And i got to tell you something, people. Before we got married, Joanne decided to go on a pescatarian diet, so so I ate some of the, the meatless, plant-based products. And here's a quick review if any of you are thinking about doing it. First of all, if people with your friends say it tastes like dirt, it tastes awful, they're full of crap. It's actually pretty good. But here's what you got to do. The burgers are good. The sausage is awful. Don't get the sausages dry. The meatballs are good. The chicken is good. And the bacon, if you put it on a BLT, it's okay. If not, it tastes like plastic. Anyway, so go try it. Be healthy. We have a great show today. We have a gentleman who is a singer-songwriter, a very recognizable voice. I think if, if you mention the band he's in, it, people will know exactly his voice. And my guest is Brad Roberts. How you doing, Brad? I'm doing well. So you're uh, you're out there in New York. How's the uh, weather right now over there? You know, it started off beautifully today, and now it's pouring rain. That's in New Jersey. New Jersey is the same. I'm, I'm 10 minutes outside Philadelphia. And it stinks because you wake up, and it's like, oh, it's going to be a beautiful day. And they always get the forecast wrong. And then you sit there, and all of a sudden it just starts pouring. I know. It's madness. Now. Total madness. I wrapped my shirt around my head. I which was about all I could do. I didn't have a hat and an umbrella. That's the worst. I always leave my umbrella in my car, and I sit there, and I'm thinking, why is it in my damn car? Because I need my damn umbrella. Yeah. Anyway, so so you're you're from Canada originally. Um, what When did you start getting into music? When did I start getting into music at a very young age? Um, this will sound a little sentimental, I suppose, but my mother was an amazing singer, and uh, she used to sing me to sleep when I was a wee little boy, and I think I had the Mary Poppins soundtrack memorized by the time I was about five years old, because she sang every song on that record, which I, which I loved then and still do, perhaps because of a sentimental attachment, but actually the Mary Poppins soundtrack is surprisingly well written. Well... I actually know the son of one of the Sherman brothers who wrote that. Wow. And it's amazing wow. because every time there's a question on Jeopardy, he posts it on Facebook. And it's just amazing because you think about it. It is, it's so many people, we're the same age, me and you. So many people have, from our age group, know that music and we've listened to it. And it just lasts and it still lasts. And you're right. It gives you memories. The lullaby, Stay Awake, is brilliant. Spring section is gorgeous. And um, Feed the Birds is another brilliant song. So you know, All pretty sentimental stuff by, by today's standards, but uh, it stands up for me. That's the time. Now, so you, your mom would, would sing them to you. And now, when did you start singing? And you have a deep voice. When did you find out you had a deep voice? <laughs> well, that's a, kind of a big question. I don't know if you remember this, but there used to be these uh, commercials for the for the cinnamon flavored gum called Big Red. Okay. And it would go Big Red, Big Red. <laughs> and I was like, I always wanted to have that big little voice from the Big Red guy for the cinnamon gum. Um, and then when I turned like about thirteen, my voice broke, um, and I began, um, you know, that was that was that for my my kid voice, my child voice. Um, unfortunately for me, as far as singing went, 
I began to try and sing along with, you know, bands like Elton John and Kiss and Alice Cooper, and, uh, they all were like tenors and beyond. And I just thought, well, I'm never going to be a singer because I can't sing these songs, let alone anything else. And it was only until, uh, it was only at the ages of like 28 that I even started to sing. Up until then, I was, because I, I had to by default, I was writing songs and nobody was, nobody else was going to sing them the way I was hearing them, so I, I sang them by default. But I had no training in singing. I had no background in singing. I didn't particularly like my voice. I thought it was kind of made for singing old Irish traditionals and maybe Johnny Cash songs, and that was about it. <laughs> um, so, you know, all my, all my training was in playing guitar. I took a few piano lessons when I was a kid. Uh, my piano teacher was just awful, though. Her name was Mrs. Dick, if you can believe that. <laughs> and she would talk on the phone while I was doing my piano lessons the whole time. And, every, and, and she, if I got a note wrong, she could hear that much, at least, and she'd whack me on the fingers with her pencil or her ruler. Whack! So I, I, and as soon as we got to, like, a remotely challenging lesson, I was like, I've had it. I'm telling my mom I'm not doing this anymore. So I quit that and took up the guitar instead. And that's what I thought I was going to do. You know, in terms of being a musician, I was aiming towards being ace free labor. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so that's a long, uh, to make a very long story a little shorter, uh, that, that's pretty much the gist of it. Well, you know, it's funny. You mentioned ace freely and, uh, some of the musicians I talked to, Kiss really had an influence on them. And I remember when I was young, when you got the album Rock and Roll Over, you were cool if you had that sticker and put it on your notebook. But was Kiss a big influence to you? Big, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, when I was in grade five, I bought their, uh, I bought Dress to Kill, and then Alive came out, and uh, the first one, and that was huge. And then I bought Destroyer, and I kind of went back and bought the first three records most people date Kiss, Kiss is good music, if you could call it that, from uh, from Alive, the first record. Um, and I actually think the third record, Dress to Kill, was a really good record, really solid. They really started to blossom at that point, and I still listen to it. And then after, um, after Destroyer, which I liked well enough, it was a lot of special effects for me, even at that young age of grade six, I was like, whoa, what's all this? Um... I started to lose interest once I got a little bit older and I started to realize, you know, that there was more to it than Kiss and that that was maybe, you know, appropriate for my 11-year-old self in a way that was dying away at that point. But I still look back on them nostalgically, you know, perhaps like you. Now, now, you know, we talked about, you know, you were a guitar player first and you played in a band in Winnipeg, I believe, a house band when you get out of college. What was your major in, in college? I did a double major in English literature and philosophy. Um, the most eminently unpractical degree one could do, I suppose. <laughs> Except that it ended up being the ideal degree for a songwriter. And I had no intention of becoming a songwriter when I started doing that degree, let me assure you. But the philosophy, of course, you know, that was good for reflection and, and um, uh, thematic concerns that I'd later address in, in lyrics. And uh, the, the poetry, obviously, you know, it, I was studying rhyme schemes and seeing how people put together ideas in small packages, you know, three verses, 
that kind of thing. So it um, it was. It, I, I think anybody going into songwriting, I would I would just I would just say, listen, if you want to get an education, skip music school, and go take out, go read books, go read poetry, and and read you know, Plato. And you'll be fine. Now, yeah, exactly. Well, see, that's good because a lot of times the schools are so expensive. You know, it's crazy. But now, so you sit there and you're in this band in, you know, I think we were called Bad Brad Roberts. And uh, when did you sit there and well, decide? By the way, if I could interject, I did not make up the name Bad Brad Roberts and the St. James Rhythm Pigs. That was a name made up by the drummer in the band at the time <laughs> who actually owned the cafe. It is sort of a weird ass name. <laughs> so, so you're playing there now. When do you decide that you want to songwrite? When, when does you know what, what age was that? I know. I think you took a class with Lyle Love it, a workshop. But when did you decide you wanted to start writing? Um, you know, the, the, where, as far as Lyle Love it is concerned, I uh, I didn't see him at a, at a in a class. Uh, Montreal at the time, uh, and uh, 
saw Steve Earle play live um, from the Guitar Town record. And that was a great record. And I just, and I, I, again, I was like, I can do this. I can do what that guy's doing. I know I can, and I, and I want to, and I will. And I, that, and that, uh, after that, I came back to Winnipeg, finished my degree, and uh, saw that I love it, and that just double clenched it for me. So you saw that, you double clinched. Now, when do you actually sit there and start writing your music and trying to record it? Um, that would have come shortly after the Winnipeg Folk Festival, when I saw La Love It. Um, I, that was pivotal for me, and I knew, okay, I, the next step for me at that point was take you the band that you're in, and I had started Crash Us Dummies by then, and up until then, we were a band just doing covers at this little cafe on the weekends, uh, after the bars closed late night place and when I say covers I don't mean like bar covers like bar bands used to play back in the day um, I mean like um, oh, we do Spider-Man theme songs on television and we would do Clancy Brothers songs and we would do you know, like mix it in with Alice Cooper and like it was a crazy crazy mishmash and it was it was all in pure fun um and then I was like, okay, I've had enough of that. <laughs> um, I graduate, I, and I graduated from from university, and I was like, I'm, I am now going to take this band to the next level and make it about my original writing. Um, and and again, I would date that from, uh, you know, like a, around the same time that uh, that I saw Lyle Lovett and uh, the stuff we. Mentioning before. Now, so you, you sit there, you start writing your own, song, own songs. What was the record industry like in Canada? Was it like America back then, where it was just, you know, you had to go to a bunch of labels and it was a pain in the ass? Or, or how did you break into it? Well, I was, uh, I was very fortunate as, um, in that uh, I didn't know have any idea how to break into the music business, but what I did know was that I had this band and I wanted to go and play outside of Winnipeg. And so I made a, I made a demo tape. I was bartending at this club in Winnipeg and I saved my tips up and made this demo. Um, this is before home recording existed, of course. Um, and I sent it off to a number of people, and one of those people was a guy named Richard Clohill, who booked uh, all kinds of acts, and he was, that summer he was doing some music festival in Toronto. And um, he called me back, and he was like, this is a great demo, and I said, you must get tons of demos all the time. And he said, yeah, but not like this. And I was quite happy about that, as you can imagine. And then... Shortly thereafter, there was a, a conference of all the with all the record labels, and they all came to Winnipeg that year for their conference. And this guy, Richard Blowhill, said, "Listen, I, you got to see this band crash this time. This is the ticket. This is what you want to go see." So uh, we had this kind of pre-hype built up uh, when we when we got to that to this uh, show, and and we. And the, and the show was part of the music conference, right? So um, it was it was pretty hilarious, actually, because every, all the bands.
bands that were uh, playing the show were like big loud rock and roll bands, and they played in one room, and then we played in another room entirely. We were in this little like uh, it looked like someone's living room. And I guess <laughs> I just figured like we were kind of an embarrassment, and how did we get there to begin with? And we'll just put them in this other room. <laughs> you choose who you decided to go with? So the first, the first, how does the first album do? How's it sell? The first album, the first album just was absolutely out of control. It, it got service to radio, it didn't, um, and people started calling in and saying, "What's that? Guy, what's this Superman song? What, who's that guy with the low voice?" And it was an absolutely call-driven success. Later on, the guy at the radio station said to me, "You know, man." I barely had to do anything. I did, it just flew out the door and boom. And it went uh, four times platinum within a year. Now, you know, like, which is crazy time. Crazy yeah. Time. Now, now, do you think because your voice was sounding different that got more people the peaked interest in it? Because, you know, everyone was used to the same sound. Do you think that helped a lot that your voice was deeper? And we're not really used to hearing that. It was absolutely a huge part of it. It was two things. It was uh, the lyrics, that song, um, which were very uh, captiv- captivated a lot of people's interest. And it was my voice. And it was, who's that guy with the deep voice? Literally, that, that's the, that was the question they were getting at radio. Everybody wanted to hear that. And um, so, you know, as I was saying earlier, I always thought I stopped as a singer, and, and it, I ended up becoming a singer. And um, my voice was responsible, in large part, for our initial catching on. Now, you, you sat there, the first album's done, when you start second, when the second album, do you know what direction you're going to go into, or do you, did you have ideas for songs you're going to write before you started it? I, I um, had an idea of how I wanted to write it that was based on the demo. I, I had already written half the record when when I sat down to write the rest of it, you know, because the, the demo tape was strong enough that I used most of the material on it. Um, 
but that was our first effort. We had a pretty low budget. We did not have a lot of, enough time. Um, and in retrospect, although I think the song Superman is a pretty good, great song, actually, um, it was overall not a, not a great record. The second record, um, I, I actually had an idea, a very clear idea of what I wanted to do. Um, and it was completely different from the first record. And in Canada, we were totally panned. God Shovel the Speed came out, nobody wanted to play it. Mm-mm-mm, went up and down the charts within an eye blink. And um, it was like, gosh, it was, you know, Canada eating its own, which they do, right? Right. Um, so, uh, but, but, but that was be- largely because um, the, the record was so much different. My, my hometown... And this relates to your question of, of you know, like, what, what, did you have an idea of where you were going with it? And the answer was yes. And um, and that the direction that I took, uh, my hometown newspaper printed a scathingly bad review that just lamented the first record and, its lo- and the sound that we once had, which was a pretty crappy sound, I got to tell you. This is a sound with no money and, and, not, and a bunch of inexperienced players. That's all it was. Um, in the meantime, down in Atlanta, Georgia, there's this radio station starts to get all these calls. Who's the guy with the deep voice? Who's the guy with the deep voice? It was the same story as it was on the Superman song in Canada. Um, and then and then it exploded. Boom. Now, I will say that uh, Clive Davis, the guy who ran Arista, you know, he plugged us into the machine. As soon as he realized that we were... Getting, that we were getting calls at radio and that sales were following, he, he pulled the trigger. Cause it, I, he was going to tr- pull the trigger on Superman's song, but he just didn't have the numbers, as he put it. Clive Davis, is, I don't know if you know anything about him, but he's a, no, he's a notorious record company president who he's written, I think, a couple of autobiographies by now. There's a documentary on Netflix about him right now. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, you know, he was signing Janis Joplin back in the day. And actually, I'm not sure if he signed her or not. I know that he she offered to have sex with him at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the mm-hmm song. Did you know that would be your first song off this off this album, or were you just did you not sure what was going to play first? Um, you know, the record company always chooses the single, and. Um, um, so I, I, I thought it was a pretty great song when I wrote it, but I did not know that that would be the first single. I can't, I can't really say that. I, I thought it was a great. I mean, I, I thought it was. It would do just fine as a first single, but there was, God Shovel His Feet. I thought was an equally good track. But you know, the, the record company chose, and there you go. Now, I didn't object. Yeah, now that song takes off. I mean, what is it like for someone who, as you said, you're very fortunate in, you know, in your album deal. Your then your album gets panned, your second album gets panned in Canada, but it becomes a hit in the US. And it doesn't only become a hit, it becomes a hit. Like everybody knew that song. Like if you didn't know that song, you were living under a rock. What is that like for a songwriter? What is that like for you when all of a sudden Probably everywhere you go, you're hearing it. Well, it was amazing. 
I have had the experience, that experience already once in Canada. And there was nowhere in Canada I could go without being recognized. Uh, but to have that happen um, in America was a completely different thing, of course. Because uh, what followed were, you know, landmark things for me in my life, like playing Saturday Night Live, um, you know, and then, and also the, uh, Europe followed quite neatly in the path of the record breaking in America. Um, so that, you know, and it went international and, you know, it was a surreal time in my life. I would, I would be walking around London and German tourists would recognize me, you know, as well as the people in London, of course, we were also on top of the pops and did very, very well there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, yeah it was just crazy. Like, uh, uh, and I, I'm really glad that I had that experience, but I sure as hell wouldn't want to live like that all the time. It was way too intense, way too intense, way too much spotlight. Now, I mean, I think, I guess some people thrive on that, you know, some people like want to be seen and they go out and they really work that, but I, I found it absolutely suffocating. Now, as it's suffocating you and the album's big, when do you when do you put in your mind that I got to start working on the next album? Is it do you ride the wave or do you start right away? As a matter of fact, I I uh, I really didn't party much in the days of my first two records, and moreover. I was like sitting around on the tour bus reading rec uh, reading music textbooks. <laughs> I remember that one of my tour managers was like, "Don't you ever drink or do drugs?" <laughs> but, but, um, and I I was very quickly bored with the road, uh, and all I wanted to do was go back and make another record. I mean, I was like, "This is great! I love making records." So I was in. That's what I was chiefly interested in doing. So I started writing the next record on the tour bus for God Show, the God Show with Speed Tour. And um, I came back to uh, after the tour with a whole notebook full of notes. And they would be notes that I would take, you know, based on conversations that I'd heard at dinner or things I'd read in the newspaper. It could be anything, you know. Um so I had a good, solid bunch of notes to work with. And when I finished those up, I just kept going. Now, you were changing your sound, too. Was that something that you wanted to do? And what did the record company say about that? Uh, do you mean the, for the third record that followed the second record? Yeah.
my voice was still there, you know. Right, that's what, the, the money maker was there. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you're you're working that album does okay. Then you record another album, and then you got into a car accident. What happened there? Now you get you say you had a close call. Now you said your arm is broken. Were you were you badly hurt? What do you decide to do with your music at that point? 
major label after a while. And after our fourth record, um, I was like, I gotta get off this record label. So I got off the record label and um, I didn't know what I wanted to do next. I was just so stressed out and exhausted by the music business. Um, so when I, when I went out to live in Nova Scotia with my girlfriend, uh, I got to know a bunch of these guys in this town, this lobster fishing town, who used to play together in a band. They were about my age. And I was like, we should have, like, we should jam at parties, man. Like, why are we doing that? So uh, we started doing that, and I started writing all these songs based on life in that small town. And it turned into, a, you know, an album worth of material. I started teaching it to these guys at parties. Like, that's how that record was born. So it wasn't really Crash Test Dummies playing on that record, but, you know, I kind of was Crash Test Dummies insofar as I'd always written all the songs, sang all the songs in the front man, you know. Um, so that that's how that record was born, very organically and totally unplanned. Now, did the accident and the near-death experience, as you say, you know, you were lucky to get out, did that affect your writing style at all, or did you start translating that into lyrics, or did you just want to leave it be? You know, I did not trans translate that into lyrics. I, I was kind of like, well, lucky lucky me, and I, I did not ever brood about nearly having died. I did not, it, it never really sunk in still kind of has you know I had a close brush with death but I'd been obsessed with death since I was a child <laughs> that was old hat for me <laughs> by then especially <laughs> now your career you know you're, you're playing you're on your own label now eventually you end up releasing a Christmas album what made you do that I love Christmas music I love Christmas albums what made you decide to do that? Was that also a, a uh, nostalgia feeling type thing? Yes, it was totally a nostalgia thing. Uh, that was, uh, you know, you were talking to me earlier about my influences, and my mom singing by my bed was one of them. The other one was Christmas carols. Every year, my parents had a party on what Canadians call Boxing Day, which is the day after Christmas. And um, my dad had a, book of piano music and he played albeit poorly and um, we would sing Christmas songs we also had some Christmas records around the house but mostly it was from that that piano songbook that I heard those songs Good King Wenceslas I mean to, for me those 19th century carols in the bleak, bleak, bleak midwinter actually that was before the 19th century but um, Good King Wenceslas uh, I don't have that song list in front of me right now, but the, all those are some of the best songs that, you know, ever written and are, you know, stand up to anything. They're still standing up, what is it, like 200 years later now? Right. Unbelievable stuff. Really, just so well written. The lyrics are so well written and the melodies. You know, if you wanted to sit down and, like, learn, figure out how to write a good song, you could take any number of those 19th century Christmas carols and just take a good hard look at it. Look at the chord changes, look at the song structure. I mean, basically they're doing the same structures as what you hear in music today. Verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus, and you're out. I actually 
Probably no bridges then. I'm mean, uh, just verse choruses, but uh, such strong melodies, you know, just so memorable. I still love those songs. So after how, how were you happy with how the album came out? Um, I thought the, the album sounded fantastic. I, I thought that the company that released it did a terrible job and it got hardly any notice, which is too bad. But we still sell it every Christmas. Now, where is where is the state of the band at this point? I mean, basically, as you said, you wrote everything. Is ever I mean, because it's been some up and downs. You had your injury. Where is everybody at as as it comes with you know? Are you all sinking at this point? Yes, as a matter of fact, um, you know, for a long, long time, I was just not. Um, uh, when I say a long, long time, the last record we put out was um, in 2010, I guess. Um, and um, I toured for that for a little while, and then, I, you know, when I was finished that record, and I still feel this way, I thought to myself, you know, this is probably the best record I've ever made. Um, it wasn't as successful as, as uh, other records, but... But looking at that, having made a bunch of records after BMG on my own, under my own steam, and then without the large, you know, sales that we had with a, being with a major, you know, a huge company. Um, that one, I, I really thought, okay, you, this, is, this is a great album from beginning to end. The lyrics are some of my best. Um, and the production was beautiful. I had a great time making it. Uh, I, it was a very unusual way of writing. I got these things called octagons, which are like these toy instruments from the 1970s. And um, they come with these discs built into them that are creepily uh, prescient of computer discs. Uh, and they have these kind of pre-programmed bands in them, and you play along, like kind of like those mall organs that we used to see in the 70s, you know, like by mall organs, I mean the organs sitting in malls and, you know you could sit down at them and they'd play the drums for you and right. you'd play along uh, so it was written, that album was written with with the aid of those things and it just um, it just turned out really well, and, but the point is that I'm making too long to, taking too long to make, is that when that record was done, I thought, I have pretty much said everything I want to say in this medium. Um, I just don't hear any more songs. I don't desire to write any more songs. I think, like, okay, quit with your head, man. This is the best thing you've done. And I and I've, I've, we had a whole bunch of songs that we didn't use, but I don't like any of them enough. I wanted to, like, for me, it's like, demo 30 songs and pick the best can you know it's just the cream of the crop and uh and i really haven't had the desire to write since then so so you sit there i mean that was what 2010 yeah so so what's years ago. what's you know you're sitting there it's a point where you know you, you had so much to give and you i mean you just you just don't feel like you feel like you're you've as they would say you you've You've done it all. What you, what you're creative yeah. to it, but do you don't you ever think that you may 
get another spark, or do you ever sit there and try to write now? Do I ever sit there and just what? Try to write? No. No, I don't. Um, you know what I'm doing right now? I'm learning to play the piano. And, um, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, ne- I'm never going to be a great piano player. And, uh, and I'm studying classical music. I am never going to perform classical music in concert halls. It's just not going to happen. But but that's not the point of it. I'm just, I am now at a point in my life where what interests me most is going back and listening to and understanding the tradition of art music in Europe from the medieval period on. Um, and... You know, I'm a big nerd. Like, I, I like to study. I, I like to uh, I like to work. The hardest thing about not being about quitting songwriting for me was like, what do I fuck? What do I do now? And um, eventually, that became the the pursuit of of listening to all that stuff that I used to hate. I mean, I just have never been able to enjoy classical music for the longest time. And I had this epiphany one one day listening to a piano piece, and um, it, it suddenly became apparent to me that I I liked Bach, and I and I I don't like Mozart. I've I've always found him way too poncy sounding, but um, but I, but I appreciate him. I understand why he's brilliant, I, and I didn't before. I, I didn't have the ears for it. You know, and um, and he, and even and even the romantic music that came afterwards, towards the nineteenth century, and this, which is still largely the repertoire that gets played nowadays in concert halls. You know, uh, all Beethoven, what well, everybody after Beethoven, basically. Um, I just I couldn't see why anybody could possibly find any of that stuff interesting, and now I find it wildly interesting. The Nocturnes of, of Chopin, I don't know if I'm probably mispronouncing his name. Um, you know who I mean. Yeah. Chopin. <laughs> I don't know if it is Chopin or Chopin. They're stunning. They're just stunning. And, and um, you know, I've I, I bought the sheet music for them. I'll never be able to play him in a million years. He's like the hardest guy to play of the entire repertoire, I think. You know, they call it the repertoire, like the great tradition. Um, which I don't really buy, but nevertheless, um, yeah. And I, I got, I took a, I found a music teacher who's giving me uh, lessons in counterpoint, which is how Bach wrote, imitative counterpoint, uh, Baroque music. Very, uh, it's just music theory at a level that I've never studied before in my life, and which is more challenging than anything I've done in my life. But I'm doing it. So you're, you're and it's given me. It's given me a new perspective on all this music. And now you're you're learning that you're learning that, and then you're you're not writing you know songs anymore. But then you guys went out to do a 25, 25th anniversary tour in two thousand seventeen. What was that like going out in the road? Yeah. What was that like going out? Because as you said, you weren't writing anything new. Did you feel different on stage? Um. Yes. You know, having gone back on the road in the last year or so uh, has been a really illuminating experience.
experience for me. The people that are coming to our shows are coming... In, what, the, the, the two people that came to our shows 25 years ago when we put out Dodge Devil the Street were coming at a time when the record was just out, you know, and they came in droves, and I couldn't have been happier. But it was a very overwhelming experience, and I, I was, you know, alienated from the crowd because it was just, like, too much, too much mania. Um, 25 years later, people come to these shows, and they're like, you know, your band is still big, a big, huge influence in my life, and I still listen to you guys all the time, and I'm so glad you're toured. Thank you for coming to our town. Yeah, that's a very different experience, you know? And it's, it's genuinely moving to me to be able to do this now and to have the opportunity. I mean, we build this tour as the uh, uh, 25th anniversary of God Shuffler's Feet's release tour. You know, quite unabashedly. Uh, some people are, are cynical about 90s bands coming out and playing all their old tunes um, and, and not, you know, not wanting to make new records, as a matter of fact, um, in many cases. Because, you know, it's expensive and you can make a lot more money doing shows. So, uh, but, 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 but for those people that are cynical about it, I'm like, you know, you, screw you, buddy. Like, this is the best experience I've had in my musical life, going back on the road under these circumstances. And I'm able to actually talk to people after the shows. We sign merchandise after the shows. And um, I, and I meet these people. Uh, and, you know, some of them have degenerative diseases, and uh, some of them are blind, and some of them have, you know, multiple sclerosis, and they're all there. And telling me their stories about their lives, and it's very moving. It's a completely different experience than it was 25 years ago. And and I'm also a much, much better performer than I was then. I'm a seasoned professional by now. I'm absolutely comfortable in my skin. I know who I am. I know, you know, how it's going to go. I know that I'm running the show. And I'm really good at it. And uh, it's just so comfortable. I've, I've given up playing the guitar. I got a repetitive stress injury, and um, from from uh, strumming the acoustic guitar, it's not. I mean, you're not really supposed to play the acoustic guitar with a strap. You're supposed to. It's supposed to be sitting between your legs, like flamenco style. And, and the reason it's supposed to be doing that is, is so that you can hold it at an angle where you're not stressing any part of your body and you're still maintaining good posture. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of guitar players go through this. They, they, uh, they get repetitive stress injuries. And um, I, did, I just never wanted to play the guitar again if it meant that kind of an injury. I have a long story I could tell you about that, man. I don't know if you want me to go into it. Uh, yeah, and then, uh, then we'll, we got to wrap up. But tell me this long story. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll make it very fast then. I got a repetitive stress injury from playing the acoustic guitar. And um, I got a great big knot of muscle on my back. And it was so big that no one could cure it. Acupuncturists broke their needles on the damn thing. So I finally went to this guy and he's... Uh, uh, Asian guy, Chinese, I think, 
I thought he was going to be a, a, you know, a Chinese doctor of the sort that I'd seen in the past. Like Western doctors just were giving me wanted to give me painkillers, which wasn't going to solve anything. Um, and it turned out. So I said, "What are we going to do here?" And he goes, um, uh, "I know this sounds racist, and I really I respect the guy. So I, let me just say that." But his accent was so thick. He said, "I'm a faith healer." faith healer and uh and i was like well i got faith in nothing buddy so i'm out of here and i turned on my heel and he said it's okay i have the faith for you <laughs> so i said i reluctantly sat in this little room with him and he asked me what was wrong and i told him and he goes we try for a miracle <laughs> we, we'll try for a miracle so we did and he put his hand on my head and i felt this beam of warm light traveled from the crown of my head all the way through my feet. I had no idea what it was. I got up, I paid him $500, and that was 20 years ago, Um, and he, uh, no, sorry, 10 years ago, and I I left the building, and I remember just weeping, because nothing happened, and I didn't know how I was going to ever get out of this chronic pain I was constantly in. Next morning, I woke up, and it was gone. Whoa. Gone. Like, gone. Not even a trace. Melted like butter in a skillet. And I I was with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and I was like, is this big lump still back there? I mean, it was like, it looked like an onion. (laughs) And she was you know, it's no missing it. <laughs> it's gone. We were, and I, I still don't know what happened. I did The best part of the story, though, is that I went back to him a month later for something else, and he was drunk <laughs> and abusive. Sitting around drinking whatever he was drinking. Hammered. Hammered and mean. <laughs> and he didn't want to put his hand on my head anymore. He was a me to buy a little bottle of water with this he'd taken a photostat machine like one of those little copy machines taking a picture of himself before iphones or anything of course and uh sure. he put them on these bottles and he and he blessed the water with his superpowers <laughs> and he said go home and drink this and think about me it'll be better of course it did nothing <laughs> but you're but you're <laughs> But your back's good. You, that knot never came back. What's that? Your knot never oh, came back. Good, yeah. Now, yes, and I spent seven years doing yoga after that. I'm in fantastic shape now. Now you have a, you have a few dates coming up in uh, Canada. Do you plan a tour in 2020 of the states, or are you going to hold off? No, I absolutely want to keep going. I don't want to stop. I'm loving it too much, and it's lucrative. I don't have a manager anymore taking 20% off the top, you know, and um, I, I'm running the show, I'm paying myself, I'm paying my band members, it's a totally self-supportive thing, um, when I say lucrative, I'm, I'm talking like, you know, we make a thousand bucks a night, we're not making millions of dollars by any, by any means, but it's, uh, you know, it, it, it hasn't been possible for me to make any money uh, in this band for such a long time and, and now it actually is has become 
something that we can turn a buck at and enjoy doing. Well, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. No tour bus, we have no crew. We do everything ourselves. Um, but it's great. Well, that's awesome. And then, you know, people, people go to the website, Crash Test Dummies, and that has the Canada dates, but then as more dates come, you'll be posting them, right? Absolutely. So people, go check out. No, what's it? I just have to be there. No, go ahead. What were you going to say? Nothing, actually. What you were going to say was more important. No, no, it's fine. I was just going to say... Come see them in 2020. Go to CrashTestDummies.com. Go look up their music, listen to their music, buy their music. And now you know that the album from 2010 is Brad's... It, it's his... Oh, oh, I guess I call it an uh, opus. Or that's your that's your climax to the music world, yes, people. Yes, so, As a matter of fact, there's a track on that record called Heart of Stone. And when, when I play that in the encore, it's just me and a guitar player and Ellen singing. Um, and you can hear a pin drop wherever anybody goes. And people are like, what is that? What's that from? And they all want to buy that record. So it's great. That's awesome, man. We, I want to thank you for people. Thank you for coming on. And people, uh, so check out Crash Test Dummies. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 750 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Twitter's at coopertalk. Instagram is at coopertalk1. Please keep up with the Crash Test Dummies. When they come to your town, go see them. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, take your vitamins, eat your vegetables, and I'll talk to you next time.